0: Welcome to Reputation Town. Welcome to Reputation Town. Happy New Year, all that stuff. We have not seen each other in months. I guess you had a very busy end of the year, as as did I. Mm-hmm. But here we're back, everyone. Um, I'm Warren. This is John. I think the last tangible thing we talked about in our last episode was the stroop waffle. I think you brought that up. I'd never, I'd never had one. Went out, got them. What an awesome little treat! It's a good thing, although you know,
1: you you wouldn't guess that syrup and those waffles aren't the healthiest, (laughs) healthiest thing, but (laughs) they're good in moderation.
0: I hit them up for, uh, if they wanted to sponsor this episode and they just sent back like a laughing emoji. So I don't think we're going to be sponsoring uh, anytime soon, oh, wow. but apparently the, the gangster moves, you put it on top of your, did you mention that you put it on top of your coffee or your tea and you let it melt? No. Have you not heard of this? I didn't hear that. So yeah, you get a, you get a Stroop waffle, you put it on top of your freshly brewed coffee or tea and you just let it sit there for a bit and it all kind of gets gooey and melty inside. It's oh, supposed to be I'll great. So try that. Okay, so we haven't done one of these in a long time. Any uh, life updates, off-topic stuff, anything before we jump into our—we uh, have a pretty long list of stories to get into today. Anything you want to mention, talk about, get off your chest?
1: Uh, I don't know. Just been working downtown a little bit more frequently, seeing more people. That's kind of fun.
0: So you're back. I know, in the I know real you've been.
1: Super, I know you've been super busy with with training and <laughs> and, and all all corners of everywhere.
0: Yeah. The. Uh, the end of last year was the busiest stretch I've ever had, meaty training wise. And now there's always a little lull after the holidays and things are starting to fill up again, but uh it was it was nuts. But it was a lot of fun and uh it's nice to be back in person. That's what mm-hmm. I have to say. Mm-hmm. Where you are you how many days a week are you in the office? Well, our office is actually under construction right now, so oh, I'm working that, out. I'm right.
1: working out of a WeWork um, yeah. <laughs> at the moment, which is actually kind of cool. I, I'm enjoying it. Wait, uh, a, university, that one uh, up at uh, the Bay.
0: bay They're pretty good.
1: Queen, yeah, yeah, it's a good experience.
0: They had some bad PR so, with that guy and the whole debacle, but overall, yeah, it's pretty the, convenient. the business, the actual product is pretty good. So go go on a couple days a week. And this is why people are tuning in. They want to hear like what how many days <laughs> we're, where in we're downtown, exactly, yeah. <laughs> what dessert snacks we're eating. Okay, so we've been going back and forth by text. We have a a docket I think of like five different stories we want to touch on, all kind of different and none of them super deep, but these are some of these are things that have been brewing for the last couple of weeks. Some of these are are relatively new, but wanted to bring something that we think is kind of interesting to our listeners this week. The first one is a, a fairly late breaking story, just in the last couple of days, with a um, very senior former union leader in Ontario, Warren. You don't see a lot of Warrens just in in life. <laughs> it's not a it's not a young person's name. There's no none of my kids go to school anymore. Anyway, Warren Smoky Thomas. That's the guy's nickname that's what in his news releases his twitter handle he goes by smoky and i've heard this name many you know i've done a lot of work in that sector and i've i've been familiar with the name and he represents them in strike negotiations and stuff like that anyway there's been allegations the union is actually suing him and a couple of other folks for allegedly um funneling some funds to themselves uh, cash assets uh 6 million dollars like to the like tune pretty, of 6 million bucks yeah, yeah. so uh, This story is just unfolding now and the reason we're bringing it up is because first of all interesting, second of all a lot of reputational impact here. If the story is true, if the story is not, there's going to be reputational impact for the individuals involved and the union involved. And this is not a small union, this is a King Kong sized organization. So when you saw the story and you've got a lot of experience in government, what were your thoughts? Where do you think this can go? And from a reputational standpoint, try to steel man it from both sides. If you're the if you are someone who's paying dues into this union, and if you're this guy who is in the middle of these in let's assume innocent until proven guilty, um, what are you thinking about this one?
1: Well, you know it I have to say, it's one of those things where, you know, the, the, super loud, almost demagogic leader in the union. And, and he often came up on the other side of issues I was working on. So uh, who knows? I don't know if the allegations are true or not. And, um, you know, that's why they're, the union's gone to court to try and recoup these funds and prove that this is the case. But at any rate, I don't know, like this isn't the first time this has happened, right? Like, what was it? A year ago, the, the head of uh, Unifor, uniform, Jerry Diaz was, um, he took a bribe, I think $25,000 kind of small potatoes compared to compared to these allegations. But um, it, I think it is. And there's another, there was, we were talking at work about it and there's another example someone raised, but it, it talk, it brings forward this idea that, you know, the old style of pretty laissez-faire management that happened in a lot of these unions, probably the day for that, the days for that are, are over. And, you know, what well, to answer your question specifically. Um, if I, if I'm the union, my big concern is I'm trying to justify the value of a union to workers in this day and age. And not having tight, tight enough control so that someone may be siphoning off millions of dollars doesn't make me really confident in, in how well the, the union is. So I think the reputation issue is is the union managing it for itself and demonstrating to members that um, it's it's not going to act like the way it, it suggests that the former leader was acting. When mm-hmm. when you saw it, you know, like as a someone someone who, who is more of a apolitical
0: uh, perspective, like how did you how did you interpret it? Apolitical by by choice. <laughs> I I you know, it was interesting to me. I saw the story, I think it was 2 days ago, yesterday or 2 days ago, I saw the story pop up on Twitter and my first reaction was like, "Holy shit, that is this seemed to be, uh, a, a, like, like you said, a bigger-than-life figure, um, made himself part of the story. Is the nickname? I think, just you know, in quotation marks. I can't think of anyone else who does that. And so, you, you, I've never met the guy, but you're imagining this is quite a character, and he's got a, you know, the charisma, and and you know, he enjoys that role. But the the, the sheer number, the the six million dollars, and, and you know, we shouldn't just single out him. There were a couple other individuals that were. Um, that were kind of grouped into this thing, but like really specific um, instances where uh, gave his wife a Dodge Durango worth $65,000 on this date and gave his kid a car on this date and the, the funneling of funds. The thing that I can't believe is in, in this day and age, how are, how, how can you do this? Like, are there not CFOs, checks and balances, accounting firms, like the fact that this, if it's true, the fact that you have this kind of willy-nilly ability for you to just do this on your own, like I, it, it's so hard to believe that I, I thought this is, you know, if speaking as per, someone who's basically a one-person business, um, you know, I hate dealing with my accountant as it is, but I just, I, I can't believe that people could get away with it, and to that degree. Like, I think the guy's salary, they listed it in one of the articles, and I think it was in the area of like one hundred thirty dollars or $140,000 a year. So this is multiple, multiple magnitude of, of that. And so, I, I'm just scratching my head. How how can this happen? And so, if it's true, then he, you know, obviously his reputation is in the garbage can going forward. But then the the union, I think, as you as you said, has a lot of work to do. And if I'm one of those individuals on the front lines paying these dues and having this union represent you, to have that kind of hypocrisy at the top, I think is going to be uh, hugely corrosive to to the union. That's just you know, off the top of my head.
1: You know, and like the, the leadership of those unions, as I understand it, is, is, is a, an election. And so I remember in previous years, Smokey running for re-election for the, the, to, to get that job. But oftentimes, you know, the person who wins is not the person who's talking about how they're going to be the most prudent manager of the affairs of the union. It's the, mo- it's the biggest firebrand, like the one who's going to fight for you. And, and, and sometimes populism w- w- wins over competence, and maybe this is what happened here.
0: Well, you know what they say, where there's smoky, there's <laughs> possibly fire.
1: By the way, I think I think we should all like just choose random nicknames. <laughs> Do we just append to our put in quotes in the middle of our name, we'll start using them.
0: Well, the, the thing is you can't choose your own nickname. Like that's that should be a that's fundamental a rule. And I don't yeah. know how he got that one, but like no one's going to pick the real nickname that they should have. They're going to pick a cool nickname. Your the nickname becomes Part you know, something that you do or habit that you have or some disaster that you got involved in, that becomes your nickname. So I think it has to be inflicted upon you from, uh, from someone else. So uh, we'll leave that one. And anyway, it's a story that I'm going to watch with interest as it unfolds. His, um, his retort, I think it just came out in the last day or so or like 12 hours ago, where he basically said these claims are absolutely bogus and are filled with uh, inaccuracies and falsehoods. So it doesn't say they're not true. This says maybe there's a couple typos or a couple of mistakes. So uh, yeah. even the response was interesting on its own.
1: Well, just, just on that, just to close, like I think when you look at what he's doing, he's doing what you see a lot of people do nowadays when they're faced with allegations, is that they don't actually address the allegations. They just throw a lot of chaff in the air to try and distract or deflect or confuse the issue and do that for long enough and people
0: will eventually lose interest and move on to something else. Absolutely right. I'm wondering why, and this I'm outside my expertise area here, but they're suing him for the money back. Why are there not criminal charges?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Like, they're, like they're, that may come. They may have asked police to look at it. Yeah. Um, you know, some breach of their fiduciary duty, or.
0: But uh, that's a great question. Maybe that's mm-hmm. still still percolating. Anyway, I don't know. Okay, we move along to something a little less serious: uh, the Prince Harry book, which I have to say, for the record, I'm not going to read. I'm not a fan. Not a fan of the royal family. Not a fan of Mr. Prince. Is he still? He's not even just Harry now. He's not a prince anymore, right? Uh, he's got he some that up? title of some sort, but it's not not what it used to be. He's the spare. <laughs> you Yeah, the heir, and you got the spare. I have to say, great name for a book. That's a great yeah. name for a book.
1: Well, but I think the whole thing has been driven by the p- publisher. <laughs> like the whole, when people I said, "Oh, what do you think of what do you think of the you know, what he's doing." this, this reads entirely as someone who's more interested in selling more books than they are about curating
0: a, a reputation. <laughs> so I obviously have no dealings with this individual. Um, and I have, have been forced to watch this from afar. Um, the, you know, I did a, I think a radio interview a couple of years ago when him and when Harry and Meghan did the Oprah interview. And mm. so I actually did watch that cause I wanted to be able to provide, you know, uh, contextual comments but it, i find this whole thing really fascinating and at the core of it so apparently he sold 1.4 million books on the first day that's Is that pretty, a lot There's a lot of books, massive apparently it's yeah. the like i think the highest selling nonfiction book on day one and mm. there were reports that he earned i think between 30 and 40 million dollars for the book plus they have like 100 million dollar netflix series and this and that so when from a from a again a reputational standpoint what what do you think is the motivation here? Uh, I wish we had our buddy Mike on here. He loves the royal family. I'm sure. Hey, shout out to Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Try to get him on the podcast. Um, what are you when you see this this whole thing happening with him and her and all the stuff in the media and the claims in the book? Like this is very non British. This is very non royal. You can't. You have to imagine that the, the royal family is throwing a tizzy at this, and so. What are your thoughts about, are, for, are you, are you going to read this thing?
1: Oh, I won't read it, no. I Like, I, I, I really like the royal family. I like the monarchy. But, I don't know, it just makes me sad. Like, it's just a sad spectacle that he's, the way he's sort of, you know, um, converting his life experience into cash at the expense of, you know, his family. It's just like, I don't know, it's pretty... And, and and frankly, like I hope he I hope he um shepherds his money well because um you know how many how many times can you go back to like sharing the dirty laundry to yeah. to
0: cash out on it, right? Like I think this is his, his go at it probably. And uh in terms of shepherding his money, he better really take care of it because I think he's probably gonna lose half of it at some point. <laughs> <laughs> uh
1: but what? But but, okay. So, from a from a, a, a reputation standpoint, m- m- like m- from my view, it it depends obviously on obviously the audience, right? Because the re- because there's no universal repu- like arbiter of what a reputation is. Right. But um, for the most part, I think, uh, well, people are interested, especially in America, are interested in the st- like tawdry stories that he's telling. um, I, I really don't think this is improving, like if helping his reputation at all. Um, especially because, you know, there's, there's, there's a, like intellectual dishonesty about what he's saying. Like he's saying, Oh, I, you know, I'm, do, I'm sharing all this in the hopes I can, you know, rebuild my relationship with my family. Is it really, that's, Good you life. really think that, I don't know. Like well, as a, as a non-monarchist, what, well, how do you perceive it?
0: I, I find it kind of curious and sad as well. and, He's he's a private individual. He can do whatever he wants. If people want to buy the thing, good for you. If you want to watch the Netflix series, amazing. That's great. Uh, I, I I feel like um, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of it, but that doesn't mean that I don't think it should exist. And so, because we're hearing a lot about free speech and censorship these days as well, uh, the thing that I find most curious is is like you can look at what people say, and then you look at what people do. And and uh, we always say in the world of crisis management, you need to. You need to be doing the right thing. And we always use Maple Leaf as the, that's the tired old example, but there aren't a lot of great examples. So Maple Leaf Foods 2008, they do the right thing in terms of proactively pulling their products off the shelves and dealing with the public and press conferences, but they also said the right thing. So you're doing both things. You're doing the right thing, saying the right thing. Here, to me, there seems to be a a disconnect where he's saying, um, the media has been attacking us. The public has been attacking us. We, I want my privacy and my mother was killed by the paparazzi and I want my privacy. And then you write a book where you air all this dirty laundry. And like the guy mentions his dick 15 times in the book. Like that doesn't sound like someone who wants the privacy. You know what I mean? Like, um, and apparently I didn't count. It was Fox news. Apparently went through it and counted the references to his, <laughs> Hodger, which is, I, that's a new word for me too. So like to me, I, you can't have it both ways. And where, where you have someone saying one thing and doing another, I tend to go with what they're doing as opposed to what they're saying. Cause that tells me, and again, you know, they bought a $14 million house. Someone's got to pay for that. But at what expense, like how much, if you pose that question to most people, how much would it take for you to like sell out your family and especially when your family has this, this, this massive, no matter what you think about it, this massive, respected, storied institution for him to sell it out. what How much does that cost? Well, I guess we know the, num- the number, but um, I don't know. I, I, I it's, it's a car accident to me. It's kind of just a, a weird and sad thing. Like the references to him, you know, doing drugs and losing his virginity and some lady spanking him in an alley. Like these are the stories that you hear. Um, similar to the Andre Agassi. Did you read the Andre Agassi biography?
1: No, but I remember you were, we're, were talking about it.
0: Excellent. It was yeah. really, really well done. It's apparently the same ghostwriter that did both the great writer. Apparently the book's really well written. It's an, an entertaining read, but I just think, uh, what are you doing to the rest of your life? And, um, the hypothetical question is if he doesn't meet Meghan Markle and if they're not together, is any of this happening or is he still with his family? I don't know. It's hypothetical, but and that's a good
1: question. a Good question. But, you know, interestingly, when you—this is just anecdotal—but looking at the reaction in um, in the UK, it's actually ha- it seems to be having the effect of actually bolstering support for the royal family at, at, at what's you know a very delicate time in this transition between monarchs, and um and you know if, I'm not sure what his intention was, other than to say it it totally. To, to your point about actions, it just totally feels vindictive. And, um, but it's not having the intent. And in, I think it's the, the reaction intended it to, or maybe it's just a cash out and that's, I'm thinking overthinking it. And he, he it is having the intention or the outcome that he intended, which is to
0: make a bunch of money. The one story where he got in a fight with his brother and he broke his necklace. That was, that was interesting to me. Like here you have a guy he's in the military, apparently kills 25 dudes in the Taliban and then he's complaining, he broke me necklace. Like, yeah, obviously that was just my, <laughs> <laughs> my terrible version of that accent. But like, I just, there's so many little things about this that just, I wonder if this guy's driving the bus or if he is being, uh, if he, the puppet strings are being pulled by someone else. Well, anyway, I, I, that's
1: I, yeah. I think there's, I, I think it, if nothing else, he was not getting good advice about how to manage his own, his own reputation if he was at the same time trying to use his experience to make some money. Um, Because some of the stuff like you talked about, like to him talking about, you know, the people he may or may not have killed in Afghanistan. Yeah. Like that's not something that veterans typically, you know, talk about exactly. Yeah. And, and it's just bad (laughs) besides bad form. It's just like a bad idea for him.
0: And does that bring heat on the royal family? Also, you know what I mean? Possibly retribution. Who knows? Yeah, possibly. Anyway, Anyway. dangerous stuff. Okay, Bell. Let's talk. Um, We've talked about Bell a number of times in the past year. It's uh, anytime you have a communications company. It's uh, you know when I when I speak at conferences, I'll I'll put a bunch of logos on the screen, and I get people like you know thumbs up or thumbs down, like United Airlines and Facebook. The worst reactions are always for Rogers and Bell. <laughs> and I think it's just because people don't like people messing with their cell phones. Um, they are changing the the structure of their Bell Let's Talk campaign. And uh, anyone who's in Canada would certainly know about this, where I, I think it's late January. I think it's the 25th this year. They have like Bell Let's Talk Day. And it started out a number of years ago where... Anytime you use that hashtag on the internet or like, you know, in Twitter or in text or whatever, Bell would pay five cents to a fund that would go towards mental health initiatives. Excuse me. This year, they're changing it. They're not doing the hashtag anymore. They're changing it to a lump sum donation, which would be the biggest yearly donation. I think like in previous years, it was like $8 million or something total. This year, they're paying a lump sum of $10 million towards mental, mental health initiatives and they've changed their whole marketing. They've got a huge branding campaign. You've probably seen some of their ads online or on TV to talk about making it more about action than words. But there's a lot of criticism that the company's doing this just to avoid negative publicity. And it, it's kind of like careful what you wish for because they started this out as this hashtag to get people to talk about it. And it's actually kind of backfired. So uh, what are your thoughts on the Bell Let's Talk restructure? Okay, but why is it backfired? I believe that it's backfired because people think that the, just as we mentioned earlier, they're saying one thing and doing another. Exactly. Like, Hey, mental health, kumbaya, this is important. And then, and again, this is anecdotal based on a few high profile incidents, but that's what the world is going to judge you on. it seems like they don't give a rat's ass about the mental health of the people who work for their company.
1: That's exactly it. And so when I read the story about how they're changing it, it, it felt like to me, like, obviously we don't know what they're doing internally, um, so just rewind for a second. So a year ago, they there was a a, a very strong, I would say, very strong um, a piggyback on top of their hashtag campaign, calling out the company for its own behavior, which is not consistent with the objectives of Bell, Let's Talk Day. And and then you had I don't know was it six months ago now um, the whole Lisa, Lisa Laflamm, yeah. uh, um termination of Situation, which again ran counter to um, the the ethos of what the company says they stand for, and it was another opportunity for people to raise, you know. Oh, and by the way, here is how Bell is not actually being sensitive to to mental health in the workplace. And so, when I look at what the changes are suggesting, like to me, this feels like the tinkering around the edges versus like the the fundamental internal change that might actually put you more in line with the thing you're trying to do. Cause what do they do? Well, they up the amount they're giving. So, okay, we're going to give more money. So we're going to buy our, try and buy our way out of the problem. And we're going to, we're going to make it, it feels, well, maybe I'm wrong Warren, but as I read it, they're not going to, it's not gonna be driven by this hashtag campaign anymore. So we want to, we want to limit the ability of people to piggyback on what we're doing. Mm. But you know, does that eliminate people actually, you know, continuing, <laughs> the, the counter campaign that happened. No, it doesn't. It's, it, it could quite possibly still manifest itself organically again this year. Yeah. So it like, yeah, they're making some changes to try and limit to issue manage essentially, and to limit the, the blowback. But fundamentally fixing this starts elsewhere. It doesn't start where they've, with the things they've talked about, um,
0: what, what, what was your take on it? Well, you- you're, you mentioned Lisa the Flam story. There were a bunch of things that led up to this, and probably we don't know all of them. But um, in 2021, a few weeks after Bell Let's Talk Day, they very publicly laid off hundreds of uh, radio announcers and radio station staff across the country. And it was so close to. The, the day, you know, you have this nice feeling and the, the, the stories and you have these, you know, former Olympians and you know, Bell, let's talk. And it's a really good they got a lot of positive press over the years. And then they just callously fired all these people, um, you know, a lot of veteran folks, really great journalists and workers who were out there. And then the public went kind of bonkers. And then you've got not only Lisa Flan, but there's another individual from there's a, one of their weather specialists who has been complaining about systemic discrimination from the company. There's a uh, another reporter named Danielle Graham who's suing the company for wrongful dismissal. And again, company with thousands of people. And these are just a few anecdotal stories. But um, it, it, it really makes you wonder, like, what else could they do? Because like, they got into this, they got into bed with this idea of mental health And was it just did they want to make a substantive change or was this just kind of virtue signaling from day one and like they can't stop it if you stop the program that's even worse and so to me this looks like you know you know when you uh, you see those movies where someone goes into the kitchen and they flick on the light and all the cockroaches go and run under the fridge this seems to me a little bit (laughs) like that It seems like these thin skinned executives who don't want people saying bad things about them on the internet and so let's, uh, let's get rid of the hashtag. Let's just switch it. Uh, eight. No, was give them 10, shut them up. Yeah. That's what this sounds like. Not to simplify. And again, I don't know any of these folks, but I've worked with enough executives. One of the biggest hurdles for big organizations to have a social media presence is they don't want people saying negative things about them online. Uh-huh. It's amazing that someone will look at a tweet from an individual that has 19 followers and a picture of a cat for their face. And they will think that that is uh, the same thing as Peter Mansbridge saying something bad about them. So, um this to me seems like trying to buy themselves out of a hole but you know what's really interesting is if you look at the ads and the posts that that bell is making online about the the new campaign look at the comments underneath the comments underneath are all the people from the public saying the stuff that we're talking about today and taking the company to task so it's not so much about the post to me it's about the comments and people are still pretty pissed about this interesting well i i it'll be interesting
1: to see how they evolve it further um, because they built up a lot of equity in it and it was even global equity. Like there was yeah. international voices echoing the, their campaign call. Um, but you know, if you don't live the, if you don't live the, the values you're, you're espousing, you know, this is the consequence
0: I think. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's talk, attack another large company via rail. And I actually, this is tough. Cause I actually, I like via rail. I, I, if I had to take, uh, if I had to go and do media training in like Ottawa, for example, I will prefer to take the train than I will to take a plane if the schedules work out. I just find it more. Um, it's a nice relaxing. ride. It's, it's yeah. You don't have the security had, in the airport. I
1: had uh, I had some people come down from the U.S. and they took the train via train from uh, Ottawa to Toronto and they thought it was fabulous.
0: They're like, "This is amazing. It's great. It's way better when than it, our experience." with amtrak when when it works it's it's a great way to travel when it doesn't work it can be disastrous and so this is a story from um, a couple weeks ago so there's a huge storm here in ontario in parts of ontario right around christmas like the worst time of year for this to happen people are traveling to be with their families and from december 23rd to the 26th there was this window in there where there's some really some really bad weather um this is the one where you might remember in buffalo there was the, the lady who very uh uh famously you know passed away in her car from the from the extreme weather there was like many feet of snow in a lot of different areas tons of accidents on the highway and so there was a whole corridor of uh, of trains that got stuck i think a, tra- a tree fell down on one of the trains and then they were all kind of stuck and the weather's terrible and people are stuck on these trains for up to 18 hours and the bathrooms weren't working there's no food there's no water people are going bend- like people are jumping off the train it was like lord of the flies on there <laughs> And again, this stuff happens. We saw the, the the airline situation in the States. There are stories like this all the time. What's interesting about this one is the lack of the company's response. So I remember right around that time, because the business that we're in, I saw these news stories coming up. And then I the first thing I do all the time, I go to Via Rail's Twitter page. And what are they doing? What are they communicating? And there's nothing there. And people are are lashing out at the organization. Like, what are you doing? Why are you not communicating with us? And I'm sure they were doing it at the train level, but from a corporate perspective, it seemed like they either didn't have their act together or they didn't want to talk about it. And they didn't have an official statement from their CEO for, do you know how many days it was? It's at least a couple, two or three at least, I think. 18, 18 days later, the official response came out. So you're, you're talking about, this is a company that makes almost a half a billion dollars a year. And this is not a rinky-dink organization. It's a huge organization, and it took them almost three weeks to send out their response, which I have to say also was written... It sounded like one of those AI-generated posts. <laughs> I was like going to say the same thing. It it wasn't terrible. It was just like homogenous and we didn't you get it right. Da, 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 da. It just <laughs> sounded It sounded kind of fake. Like it sounded like something they reluctantly pushed out. It took
1: 18, day, took, took, 18, took 18 days. days to write.
0: 18 days. Like what are they doing? Two words a day. And so... Things happen operationally, and I, I you know, I, I saw some people online say like they should have what do they call like a strike team, ready to go all the time. They're sitting there, ready to go, just in case of situations like this. And it's an expense, and you might not need them, but when you need them, they can go out there and deal with the situation. That's an operational response from a communication standpoint. Eighteen hours would have been too late. Eighteen minutes? Now you're talking, right? Mm-hmm. You got it. Like this stuff has to be done quickly. And the fact that it took that long, like you're wondering what kind of gong show is it? What's the roadblock? What is, is it the CEO, someone on the board? Like why? I have no idea why, but in 2023, it is absolutely inexcusable for a company to take that long to get an official. Like at that point, don't bother. Why why are you sending it out? Why? And I have to say, again, I like Via Rail. Like my my kid takes via train back and forth to school she lost her suitcase one time first time traveling she's like lost her bag she thought someone stole it i called vrl some dude got on the phone tracked it down had it like i i actually feel a huge affinity for this company but i don't understand um the frontline people i think are great uh but the in the corner office i don't know what is going on from a decision making process how does it take that long like what what are your thoughts around that well i i I
1: just say, and I'm not trying to make excuses, but I think this is characteristic of, you know, how government o- often operates where it's, it's, very slow. It's, um, uh, layers of, of, of process that you can't break away from. And so I bet you, I bet you to, to actually even tweet, it takes like, you know, check off of six different people in three different departments or something like, I don't know if that's the case, but it wouldn't shock me because I've seen other examples that are not dissimilar. And, and as a result, it's, that's just impossible to operate in a crisis that way. And so you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, you have to have a mechanism to operate in that circumstance. And, you know, I think, look, act of God, snowstorm, tree falls on track. Like, I don't think anyone's, um, uh, you know, blaming the company for the instance it was the fact that for hours and hours and hours afterwards there wasn't even any communication to the people on the trains mm-hmm. right like the 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 paralysis that existed um outside inter, out, externally it was internal yeah. as well and and you know what like i think i think a lot of the criticism was just about that like we weren't getting they weren't getting any information and then after the fact to your point there was no account there's no accountability And when it finally came,
0: it, it sounded very disingenuous. It was, yeah. yeah. So I've seen situations like this in the past where there was a, there was a VRL incident, I think in the nineties. I'd have to, I I haven't, I should have checked this, but there was a, a, a train derailment somewhere. And I remember watching the national and the CEO of VRL was on the site doing interviews on CBC and I don't know if it's possible to get the, the the interim president, Martin Landry. I don't know if it is even possible to get him there, given the storm. And what, what you know, you, you're not going to you don't want to put people on the roads in an unsafe situation. But um, at the very least, and I checked out this guy on LinkedIn, no posts, not, like no like no one of those executives, no profile on social media. What I would have loved to have seen as a as a as a as a PR practitioner and as a customer would be his mug on Twitter doing a video where he does a two minute update about what's going on and what the company's response is to have a uh, generically written thing that he probably didn't even write 18 days later is, uh, it's just bullshit.
1: Yeah, no, I, I would agree by all accounts. And then of course, you know, what happens is because the company, which is crown corporation, isn't able to do that. Then the issue cascades upward to the minister. And so the minister ends up, being the one to, um, to to wear it. Now you know, we, like we, this is political too, right? Sometimes the political level doesn't give the corporate level yeah. the flexibility to operate in those circumstances. So, um, it's it's tough to say in this case, but that, that doesn't stop you from telling the people on the train like what's happening, absolutely, <laughs> like, or at least or even. You know they talked about how they weren't giving food out to people or you know um yeah. there was operational issues just with like the facilities on the train like that shouldn't be happening like there should be no. you should shouldn't you should have a, a
0: robust enough operation that you know that you're preparing for for those circumstances well, they're lucky they didn't have medical emergencies or someone passing away. Like, I don't know what the case was, but there, that could have been a, a nightmare. And, like, we do crisis situations or crisis training with organizations, and they have, like, tabletop exercises. Mm-hmm. Called. You come up with, um, like, you know, if it's a ski resort, you say, okay, well, it's uh, minus a 30, and the chairlift breaks, and there's people stranded on it. Like, that's an obvious thing. With a train... This is number one. This is the most obvious crisis. And so to say that this wasn't uh, predictable or wasn't anticipated is is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I, re- I remember many, many years ago when I first started my business, I wrote an email to, to Via Rail pitching media training to the company. And I got a response back from someone saying, uh, I forget who it was, but they basically said, um you know in polite terms you know thank you very much for the note but you know looking at your career and where you're starting you're 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 not ready you're not ready to (laughs) provide training to be around like who's not ready now bitch (laughs) you know what i mean like this is such basic 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 stuff yeah um and but the the problem is there's no competition so they're like well what are you gonna do what are you gonna do Now what I did, I drove my kid back to school instead of putting her on the train. And so we had a nice conversation, but, um, I don't know how many other people were, were in that boat as well. Like ultimately there aren't a lot of choices or maybe I'll fly, maybe I'll fly Porter next time. I don't know. But it's, uh, it, this, this was an easy win where you just had to communicate a little bit and they dropped the ball so badly, like 18 days later, don't even send it out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Last one of the day. This is a really interesting story. And I, uh, It's from, if anyone wants to look it up, it's from December 22nd in the Washington Post. Um, There was a newspaper, like a local newspaper in Virginia, it was called The Hook. I think it was an online publication, and they had done, uh, I think, they had 22,000 stories in their archive, and they had done a lot of really um, groundbreaking work trying to expose corruption and interesting stories and government ne'er-do-wells and uh, just local stories like with a really investigative kind of flair. Anyway, the the paper went out of business and was kind of folded, their archive was folded into another organization. And it turns out that in June, all 22,000 of those stories disappeared. They're just, they're gone from the internet, you can't look them up. And uh, so that's a huge loss of information. The speculation is that there was an individual who was named in a story 19 years ago as a suspect in a rape case who um, people are alleging that this individual purchased the, the defunct paper and then just deleted all the archive. And I thought, wow, this is taking reputational control to a whole new level where you buy an entire publication and delete it from the internet. I don't know if you had a chance to read that, but if, if so, what are your thoughts when you read the story?
1: Well, it's pretty, pretty interesting story. You know, where my mind went to is, I think, you know, even though we're sometimes in an adversarial position with, with journalists in the media, like they're fulfilling an important role. And, um, I also think that, uh, local journalism is actually really important. I think, um, the consolidation, especially in Canada of, of media has not been a good thing generally, um, it um, it's led to smaller newsrooms. It's led to worse coverage. Maybe worse is the wrong word. It not as much coverage um yeah. of, of things that are happening, and um and so when I read a story about you know a, a smaller like outlet like this, like first off it went on a business, but then second um yeah there is like look there's outwardly there's nothing wrong with what happened. It was you know, an asset that was purchased by someone, they decided that they would no longer like this asset shared with the public. So that's, that's what they did. Um, But uh, I think it just speaks to the bigger issue of, um, of the importance of of trying to cultivate, you know, strong uh, news organizations to allow balanced coverage. Um, Because I, I think, you know, informed journalism that is, is balanced it, it tells both sides of a story is important and sometimes we're missing that because the it, uh, media is increasingly becoming siloized and and you know sort of um focused on you know telling having having a voice that's either very partisan from one way or the other or just telling not as balanced a story as you otherwise like mm. i don't know you're, you're you're a journalist what and
0: you're such <clears throat> as a journalist like what what are your thoughts on it So the uh, my my thoughts are like it's interesting. There's a there's a quote at the end of the story. There's a guy named David McNair. He was one of the early reporters, and the final quote in the Washington Post story is, "The irony is we have this technology to preserve digital information, and yet it's more vulnerable than ever." He said, "Information was safer when we wrote things on stone." I find that really uh, what an interesting quote and. If you think of all the people, all the organizations, all the stories, all the stuff that was written about in this, it was this like library of information, this time capsule of this community. And a lot of the organizations, not only this one individual, um, the guy's name was Curtis Ofari. And he's a DC-based uh, investment banker. And again, there's no proof the, the the transaction was done through a lawyer, so they don't really know who purchased it. But this individual had been named as a suspect in a rape case about 19 years ago and subsequently had been trying to, um, he, he had uh, asked the paper in 2012 to pay him $250,000 in damages and to remove the article. He sued them for libel for $2 million. He's been going to Google and, and asking them to remove all these links and, and connections to the story. So this has been going on for quite some time. And the irony is, here's a guy who tries to, uh, keep the story on the down low and now it's the subject of a Washington post story. so um, it's it's uh, this shouldn't be allowed to me um, you know you think of tools like the wayback machine and 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 other digital archives you, you it, it's hard to for me to fathom that this thing isn't backed up somehow um, but for one one individual again allegedly to take this extreme route and I'll bet you he didn't even have to pay that much. Like, how much do you have to pay for the archive of a newspaper that's out of business? <laughs> like, my first job out of school, I worked for a couple months as a reporter in uh, southwestern Ontario for a newspaper that a guy bought for a dollar. The newspaper went out of business. He bought it for a buck, and he got some government funding, paid the reporters a little bit. So um, he might have gotten this for a song and a dance and and deleted the archive. What a huge crater of, of, uh, of information. So I find this... Um really extreme. It's kind of backfired If he was trying to keep his name out of the press, it didn't really work. Mm-hmm. but uh, this 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 speaks to the core of this podcast. Uh, you know, sometimes people think that we're being we're being harsh in some of these organizations and I wish we had more positive examples to share, but it's the the negative ones get reported so much more frequently, but. That someone will go to this degree to try to put their fingerprints on their reputation and, and reverse engineer it, I find is fascinating about human behavior and psychology and all those other things.
1: Well, you know, this actually makes me think of something that our um, friend Molly McPherson uh, mentioned Molly. Um, one of the last times we talked to her when she was talking about an issue she was facing and trying to manage online, and and you know the the, the revelation that. Interacting with the, the, um, the direct, in, or engaging directly with the negative discussion, um, just drives the algorithm and drives you know sort of the opposite of what actually you want to have occur. Um, and in this case, just to your point, like his his instinct was, oh, I must make this go away, so I'm going to buy it. I'm, I'm going to be go through this. Assuming it's he did who he did. Yeah, as you say. We don't even assuming. know if it's this guy, but. Um, whoever did this um, uh, and if it was him, he went through this exercise to try and um, minimize attention on it, but it actually had the opposite effect. Right. And I think um, this is where sometimes reputation management is counterintuitive to, you know, what your, what, what men, what gut instinct often directs you to do. And that's why having sort of, you know, some some sober advice around the table can help you manage it better because it is, it's like, you know, you said it earlier, somebody sees a, somebody sees a, a, a tweet from someone who has very few followers and it drives them to like want to engage. And just by the mere act of engaging, it drives further attention <laughs> on the thing you're trying to, you're trying to, yeah. to, 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 to drive down. Absolutely. And, that, and I feels like that's what this guy did in this case, just more, more through a mix of old school and, and digital
0: Methods. Well, good luck buying the Washington Post. I think you're going to need deeper (laughs) pockets. Exactly. So, for anyone who wants to look it up, it's December twenty second, twenty twenty two, by a guy named Paul Paul Fari, and the article is called "A Newspaper Vanished from the Internet: Did Someone Pay to Kill It?" And uh, it's an interesting read with a lot of lot more context than we got into today. Um, That wraps up the stories we wanted to chat about. Oh, there's one more thing I wanted to mention that I don't think we've talked about. And um, it touches on the Lisa Laflamme story. And again, I don't mean to to bring this up again and again and again, but um, I heard through the grapevine, and I find this just interesting, again, from a reputational uh, management standpoint, you have to think that her reputation has gone on the upswing, Bell's has gone down, or Bell Media, since that took place. I heard from someone that her husband, boyfriend, I don't know what their situation is, but her life partner is one of the... uh, leading consultants at navigator the crisis communications firm really yeah and i thought that was kind of cool so when she's doing her as they famously call it the hostage video kind of in the cottage you know the grainy very informal video that there was very likely a very skilled uh, crisis communications person in the room kind of helping her out with that and i don't say that in any kind of negative way i just think it's uh you know i kind of I, I think fondly of the two of them sitting there, hopefully having a chuckle at the. And again, it's not a funny situation, but just the way that they were able to, that that one or two people can actually overpower a multi-billion-dollar organization when it comes to reputation. If you're kind of on the right side of history, so um, I found that uh, just interesting that you had someone in the industry kind of might that might have been kind of giving her some advice along the way. Interesting. Anything else you want to mention, or are we going to wrap this baby up? No, nope, let's wrap it up and uh, come back, come back at it next week. All right, everyone, hit up the Stroop Waffle, folks. We're looking for a sponsor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we we work so for can, waffles.
0: Exactly. I'm going to go. Uh, I think I have some upstairs. I might go grab one right now as a snack. Need a little sugar rush. Thank you very much, and uh, great to see you, John, and uh, everybody else. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for stopping by. If you liked this episode, please rate, review or recommend the show. See you next time.